Thank you, Michelle, Jessica, and Carly. For a minute there, you made me wonder if I was in the right church. That's the way to do it. Good singing. All my sins are washed away. What a beautiful thing it is to have our sins washed away by the blood of Christ. I don't know that there's a better feeling in the world to know that we are clean before God because of the atoning blood. God is good to forgive us, is he not? Amen. How about when it comes to us forgiving those that have sinned against us? Is that a good feeling to not only be forgiven, but to also get to be the one that can forgive others for their sins? That's what we're going to look at this morning. How appropriate. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is preaching a sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount simply because he's literally preaching it on the side of a mountain. And in chapter 6, he is teaching his disciples how to pray. And so if we want to pray to the glory of God, if we want to pray effectively in Hebrews, I mean, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, we have to pray something along these lines. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do we have debtors? Is there possibly somebody in our lives that we have our hands around that we want choking rights with because of the offense that they have defiled us with or brought against us or offended us with? Forgiveness. Robert Louis Stevenson told this story, and it's about two uh, sisters, and it's in Scotland. If you can't quite wrap your head around how they would live like this, anyway, I'll give you that little hint so you can enjoy it. He tells a story of two unmarried sisters who share a single room. They literally live in a single room. And as People are apt to do in close quarters. The sisters had a falling out of all things over some aspect of important theology. Now, the controversy was so bitter that they never spoke to one another again. Yet possibly because of a lack of means or because of the innate Scottish fear of scandal, they continued to live together in that single room. They drew a chalk line right down the center the best they could in that room. And it separated their two domains and it divided the doorway and the fireplace so that each could go in and out and do her cooking without stepping into the territory of the other. And for years, they coexisted in hateful silence. Their meals, their baths, their family visitors were continually exposed to each other's unfriendly silence. And at night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus, the two sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives. The particular church that they attended would regularly pray the Lord's Prayer together, congregationally. 
obviously, they did not join in that prayer. Because there's no way to pray these words and remain bitter and unforgiving. Have you ever noticed, I'm sure you have, I certainly have, how easy it is for us to go to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for this transgression. I know it was wrong. And I thank you for being such a forgiving, loving God. And then perhaps we walk out of that prayer session or time of repentance or whatever, and somebody offends us. And all of a sudden, sin is a serious thing. All of a sudden, if they ask for our forgiveness, we've got to do some math. We've got to do some serious calculating. We become very, very deep thinkers about the wages of sin and how offensive it is to us and perhaps others. So we become very strict and exacting. Oh, you want forgiveness. I'm going to really have to think about that. Because when I'm doing the math in my head, when I'm thinking about the pain that you just caused me, I'm not so sure it's going to work out in the end where I can offer you forgiveness. Strange how our minds work. How come it's not such a big deal for us to go to God daily as we are encouraged and ask forgiveness? But then when someone asks us for forgiveness, it is a huge deal. Something isn't right, I think, with that thinking. I guess a good question to ask would be, are we just as excited to forgive others as we are to be forgiven? Perhaps we need a little teaching in that area of forgiveness, and Jesus is going to give it to us in this verse today, really the second half of verse 12, because we looked at what it means to be forgiven. And now we're going to look at what it means and, perha- and hopefully gain a gospel perspective on what it means to forgive others. Just a few verses down in chapter 6, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, did I read that right? Because my first question or point is, is that grace compromised or grace confirmed? Is, is Jesus saying, wait a minute, no salvation until I do my part? Is Jesus saying there's works involved in gaining his grace? Is this a compromise? So we we can't be saved or we can't be forgiven from our sins unless we first forgive others for their sins. Isn't that earning salvation? Is that what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples? And I would say a resounding no. Absolutely not. Salvation is by grace alone. We do not have to barter our way Into the kingdom of God. We are saved by the atoning blood of Christ. Every for every act of unforgiveness for every sin. He has taken it and he's nailed it on the cross. And therefore we can stand before God with a pure heart and holy hands. Not because as we sang this morning. I always appreciate good theology and praise songs. 
if I can find this good theology, not because of who I am, but because of what you have done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. That's how we get into the kingdom of God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift. Not by works so that no one can boast. In Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. It is salvation by grace. So if it's not grace compromised, then what is it? Jesus is saying, I think, that those that have received grace, those that have been forgiven, will also forgive. So it's really grace confirmed. It's, it's a confirmation of the work of the Spirit in our lives. If the Spirit of the living God, think about what the Bible teaches about God. I mean, all of the attributes, the holiness, the power, the sovereignty, the mercy, the love. If, if that being, God the Holy Spirit, comes to take up residence in our hearts, something will change. Absolutely has to change. And one of the things that has to change if we have truly received God's grace is the way we look at God, the way we look at the world, and the way we look at others when it comes to sin and forgiveness. If we have no desire to give grace, it can only be because we have perhaps not truly received it or embraced it or experienced it. So what Jesus is saying is if you have experienced his mercy and his grace and how incredible it is, simply put, you will forgive. Now, we know that it doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. That's not what this is teaching. It doesn't mean that I might not have to think about it for a minute. I mean, if you've greatly offended me, I've got to I do need to do some calculating. I do need to think about how I'm going to apply the grace that God's given to me. Maybe things do need to be worked out. I'm not saying that's not going to take a lot of effort. And that it won't, that I won't have to revisit any hurt feelings that come up again and, and resubmit them to the grace of the original act of forgiveness. I'm not saying all that. We know that is true. But it is those who have no desire whatsoever to extend grace, to only live in hurt, to only live in bitterness, whose souls may be in peril, according to this scripture. If the spirit of the living God lives in us, we've received his mercy and we refuse to forgive. You know, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, will not allow us to get away with that. And he will counsel us day and night. My brother, my sister, my child, you need to forgive. You need to let it go. You need to bring it to the cross. That's what the Spirit of God will speak to us day and night, weeks, months, years, however long it takes, because it's not okay for a true child of God to live in constant unforgiveness. James 2.13 says. For judgment is without mercy. To one who has shown. No mercy. And so without throwing our salvation into jeopardy. 
In some way, our own forgiveness depends on our capacity to forgive. The Charles Spurgeon says, unless you forgive others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. There's a sense in which if we're going to pray this, we're asking God not to forgive us, are we not? The Puritan Thomas Watson says, our forgiving others is not a cause of God's forgiving us, but it is a condition without which he will not forgive. Philip Ryken says, the ability to forgive is the sure signs of having been forgiven. Grace confirmed. It's part of the proof that we have received God's grace. Those who are truly forgiven will forgive. Might have to work through it. Might be tremendously difficult and long-suffering, but they will forgive. Perhaps my favorite quote is by an English poet, George Herbert. I love the way he puts this. He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven. For everyone has need to be forgiven. When you talk about this very difficult thing, it's a a can't resist the temptation to look at Matthew 18. And I think perhaps has the best just down to earth example of how this would really be hashed out and worked in real life. And it's in that chapter where forgiveness comes up and Peter, the great apostle, wants to really draw a bead on it. He wants to really understand how it works because uh, in order to please God, he certainly doesn't want to un, um, unforgive or, uh, or to, I guess, be below the bar of what is required for forgiveness. He wants to please God in the area, but he doesn't want to go over the bar. He doesn't want to give more than that's necessary because who wants to do that, right? And so he asks that great question, you know, surely there's got to be a, a stopping point to it. There's got to be a cutoff line here as far as how far we go out in extending our forgiveness. And so he has that conversation in verses 21 through 28. I mean, 21 through 22 in Matthew 18. He comes to him and he says, Lord, how often will my how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. So, I mean, that's generous. I'm sure he's thinking, I understand I do have to forgive, but is there not a cutoff line? And have I not at least met the bar or gone beyond it with the seven? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. He tells Peter, don't keep count. Don't keep tabs. You, you, you can't you can't let go and hold on at the same time. It doesn't. That's not how the kingdom pro, uh, principle of love and mercy and grace. And that's the what we prayed before. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on heaven as it is. On earth as it is in heaven. So we want the reign and rule of Christ's kingdom to come into our hearts. And you can't have two opposite principles Working here at the same time. Jesus is saying forgiveness is 
unlimited. It's unlimited. And then he tells a tremendous parable to teach this. And you're familiar with it. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. So I won't take the time to read through all of it. I'll read a a few um, scriptures here and there. But basically just narrate it for you. But there is a man who works for a king in the royal palace. And he must be have some American blood in him because he he has spent way over his means. And now he is in tremendous debt. And the king is working on his books and he's seeing how much money he has, how much he doesn't have, whatever, who owns him. And this guy's name comes up and he he's accumulating it all and tallying it all. And he sees that this servant, this servant of his owes him what in our day would be millions upon millions of dollars. He's been spending the king's money. The whole point of the story is that it is an amount that is unpayable. Just not going to happen. Not with the servant's means. It's way beyond his capacity. And so the king knows this. He can't repay it. He uh, he has the man summons and says, take that man and his family and put him in prison and servitude. Perhaps I'll at least get a little return on my money of what I've lost. And then something unthinkable happens. This servant that is in such great debt goes to the king and just begs him, begs him for mercy, begs him for time. And the king pardons him. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant Released him and forgave him the debt. It's like opening the prison doors from a life sentence. He now can go out and breathe the fresh air. He he has his life back. He has been liberated completely. Released of this debt that he no doubt spent many years accumulating of unwise choices. And so the king released him from that misery and absolute ruin. But of course, he still has to live and perhaps on his way out of jail or away, away from as he's walking away from the king, he's thinking, well, I still need money. I still like money. I got to live. So I'm going to do some tallying of my own. And I happen to know somebody who owes me some money. When he, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and Much, much, much lesser amount. And he sees him. And he began to choke him. Saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And that's it. The story ends there. So what do we do with that? Well, you correct me and say, wait a minute, Pastor, the story doesn't end there. Because if it ended there, then it would be grace compromised and not confirmed. Surely Jesus wouldn't leave us hanging with somebody who was forgiven. Then he goes out and doesn't forgive. So He's teaching his disciples that we can go to God anytime, free access, and ask his forgiveness. But when somebody offends us, mm -mm, 
Lock and key. Now the story continues. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The the full weight of the law that had been completely released off of this overspending servant was just heaped back on his shoulders, all of it. Justice now, judgment now. And God says, in essence here, it's, it's just wrong. I don't think it's a stretch to say it's just evil to be forgiven that much and none not to turn around and forgive others. I think if, if we fully understood how destructive our sin is against God, how offensive what we do is against him. And then how generous he is to mercifully open the prison doors and let us go. It would change our perspective. It's meant to change our perspective. And God says, forgive your brother from your heart. He's not saying just sweep it under the rug. He's not saying... Just go through the motions, you know, it's mechanical, it's perfunctory, just say the words and it counts. No, do the math. Think about it. Think about the, the hurt and the pain of sin. But, but after your calculations, understand how offensive you have been to me. Because that's your platform for forgiving others. That kind of thinking can only take place in a heart that's been changed, in a heart that's been enlightened, and in a heart that has now seen kingdom of principles as opposed to worldly principles. So what's the platform if, if I really have my hands around somebody's throat and maybe I just want to choke them in my heart or maybe I've already tried to choke them out a few times, whatever. What about all that pain and that hurt? I mean, how does this work? How is it really possible? Because, yes, offenses, offenses are great and sometimes seemingly unforgivable. Well, it is only possible through what I'll call the platform of mercy. We have to be standing on or immersed in the mercy of God and how he understands it. That, that's the basis. That's the first step. That's how we launch it. That's how we have to look at the offenses against us is through the eyes of the mercy of God and grace of God extended to us in our own lifestyle. Very, very important, because if we don't look at offenses against us, our flesh will resist. The flesh will come up with reason after reason after reason, good reasons why I should not forgive this person. And if we begin to look at it through that, that view will come up with a wrong conclusion. We have to look at it through mercy. Not how much the offense hurts. Is it debatable? Is, it, is Jesus saying we can let the little ones go, but not the big ones? 
and we should judge or or our idea of justice or equity should be based on the hurt in our heart or the damage done. You know, mercy means it's not my job job to act as judge and jury. Mercy means it's it's not my job to, to keep count. It's not my job to to hold something against them that I can use to manipulate whenever I feel bad again, then I can bring it back to them so they'll feel bad. And then at least a little bit of justice is being done. Because the flesh says there's just something wrong about letting a person walk out of prison. There's something wrong about me liberating them. Mercy doesn't keep mental records, hold back portions of forgiveness. God doesn't use mercy to broker behavior. So my new focus, this mercy platform, my new focus is not your sins and your mistakes, but mine against God or against my fellow man. But primarily against God, it's it's my mistakes. That's that's what I have to see first as I look out into the world in order to have this platform. Because I want to be a conduit of God's mercy. It's so incredibly freeing to be forgiven. That in my heart should be this desire to set others free. Just as God has set me free. The fact is, I don't even deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to have the life I have. Because I've been let out of prison just like that unmerciful servant. With all kinds of blessings and gifts and freedoms. And I don't deserve a single one of them. If I was going to calculate things based on what I actually deserve. Mercy doesn't count faults. And we need to understand that if this is true. When we think about forgiveness. We have to look at it with the long haul in view. Because if it's unlimited and it doesn't. It doesn't stop after seven or, or, or 21 or however many figures you want to come up with it legalistically. This is going to get real, real, real. Because we will be offended countless times. Sin is relentless. And if you live with somebody in close quarters like those two sisters, you'll know. Sin is relentless. The offenses come. We've got to decide every day what we're going to do with it. And if we're like Peter and we think, well, you know what? I just want to see a finish line. If I can just see that finish line, then I think I I can muster up enough goodness or grace and mercy of my own to, to make go the distance. But when they cross that, I can't go any farther. I'm out. If we if we think that way, we are in big trouble because all the relationships we have, because none of them are perfect, they're going to start ebbing away. Eroding, being destroyed because we're no longer willing to forgive. We drew a line in our hearts, in our minds with different people based on how we relate. Some people, they're this close to our line before we cut them off. We have to be constantly mindful of God's mercy in our lives. 
Yes, what they did was wrong. That's, that's, not, that's not what's on trial here. Yes, what they did is wrong. Yes, what, what they did demands restitution. And of course, there should be some form of justice in the courtrooms. People need to learn lessons. There are consequences to life. But the question is, have I forgiven them? Mark Driscoll said, the reason that some people don't forgive is because what's been done against them is so very real that they lose sight of their own responsibility and they're absolutely overwhelmed by the person who's offended them. Forgive them. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. As God in Christ has forgiven you, that's the gospel. We love the gospel. We're gospel people. And I love the gospel in my heart a lot more than I love having to live it out before you. I love that God forgives me. I love that I can go to to him every day and just list things off. He already knows about it. Little things, big things, it doesn't matter. But man, it's just hard on this, this horizontal level. Because mercy is also about Absorbing the personal cost. Now think about what that king did in order to offer that forgiveness, extend that liberation. He forgave that debt. You know what that means? It means he ate it. That was real money in this parable. He doesn't have it anymore. Astronomical figures. It's gone. He absorbed... The cost. And so. Forgiveness means giving up choking rights. The unmerciful. Servant seized him. And choked him and says, pay me what you owe. And Jesus is saying, you got to take your hands off that guy or that girl's throat. And release them. And it may be very costly. When is forgiveness not costly? We're sinned against. I don't know about you. What do you lose when somebody sins against you? If we take it out of the financial realm, put it into the personal realm. What do you lose when somebody sins against you? It's not a good feeling. You lose sleep sometimes. For me, I, I lose peace of mind because now I'm just I'm obsessed with it. I'm hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm overcome by it. And I, and I can't even think about the other things in life. My peace of mind, my joy is gone. Because of that. Perhaps a reputation shot. Because we've been sinned against or slandered against or gossiped against. Never regain it the way it once was. And you may have even been innocent. It's gone. Money might be gone. And what they did was wicked. But it must be let go. One definition of forgiveness to let go without a sense of guilt, obligation or punishment. Do we have our hands around somebody's throats or throat today? 
Maybe just a little bit. Holding on to it in some kind of way. So that we can reuse it if needed. In the future. Mercy means suffering the loss. God takes a hit for us, right? On the cross, plain and clear. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. He pays for it, fair and square, willingly and lovingly and mercifully. You know, sometimes things are restored and sometimes they're not. But forgiveness doesn't hinge on restoration. You think about Joseph just quickly. Look at Joseph's life in the Old Testament. Talk about being wronged. His brothers sell him into slavery. Look at the trials that he faced from that time. He lost it all. He lost his family. He lost his culture. He had to go live in a different part of the world. He lost his freedom. He even lost his tunic one time. Based on a false accusation from Potiphar's wife. Had to flee the scene. As a streaker, he lost it all. His brothers did him dirty. And then they come to Egypt because now they're dependent upon Joseph, who is now risen to second to only Pharaoh. And they are shaking in their boots because they know how it works, right? You return evil for evil, right? You wrong me. You got to come back to you, buddy. They're scared to death. And what does Joseph say? Am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? Yeah, you took everything from me. You messed me up. Yeah, it would hurt. I was lonely. I was scared. I was young. You betrayed your own flesh and blood. But am I in God's place to take the kind of vengeance upon you that you're scared I'm going to take upon you? And he embraces them. He hugs them. He cries. He kisses. Man, can we do that? Could I do that? Only if I'm standing on the platform of mercy, looking at everything through the eyes of grace. If I don't, the flesh will get the better part of me. And I am not in God's place. God is the judge. God is the jury. There are two pitfalls that kind of I've already touched on them here. But as we think about it, two of the greatest pitfalls, I think, about offering forgiveness is one. And again, I've already touched on it is is to assign different value to our sin against God as opposed to other sin against us. Uh, My my sin against God, yes, it's it's costly, but your sin against me, Just went through the roof. It's to think that our sin against God is small and man's sin against us is is to the point where forgiveness is actually debatable. You blow it against me, man. So is is for you to sin against me even greater than me to sin against God? That's faulty thinking. Why? Because we're not on equal plane with God. There's no comparison here. 
To offend me, yeah, okay, I'm a sinner, I offend other people, it's hurtful. But to defend a holy, righteous God that holds our life in the balance, there's a difference. A God that has never offended anyone, a God that only pours out love and mercy or justice, perfect equity, there's, there's a difference here. I think I used this example one other time. But if you get mad at me and you go to my house, you drive up to my house and you got a big old rock and you throw a rock through my window and you break it. I'm going to be upset. That's not right. That's not good. There'll be some consequences. You take that same rock because I threw it back at you. You take it, you save it for later. You take that same rock and you go up to the White House and you throw it through the White House window. What's going to happen to you? You may never see the light of day. Why? Because of the degree of importance. There's a tremendous degree of indifference and importance and value when it comes to our sin against God. We have to keep that in mind in order to properly process this hard work of forgiveness. It's a faulty system there. And the second thing is a faulty personal justice system. It's not just about the value of the person offended and the enormity of our sin, but also the way we think about justice. How does it work in our minds? Is it scriptural? Is it biblical? We think it's perfectly reasonable for God to forgive us. We've done our Bible studies on that. We understand how it works. Christ paid the penalty. He spared us from a very deserved judgment. And yet, somebody offends me and there's just something wrong about me just forgiving them all of a sudden. Just something not right about it. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm letting you off the hook. And in order for the world to be in proper balance, you've got to pay something. We either don't forgive or we, we throttle our forgiveness. Hold it back a little bit or throttle it based on your response. Maybe based on your repentance. Perhaps we don't forgive at all. When we forgive, we're not saying that a wrong wasn't done. We're not saying it's no big deal. We're not saying, ah, it's not even evil. Like today, the big thing to do is, ah, don't worry about it. And then just hold it in your heart. Act righteous, but hold a grudge in your heart. Remember, proper justice is taken care of in the courtroom, so there are consequences. This can be a good life lesson. But we're not allowed to come up with our own justice system because here's what happens. If you come up with your own justice system, it's not going to be based on equity. It's going to be based on how badly you were, you were hurt. It's going to be based on your hurt feelings. And if my justice system is based on my hurt feelings, there's a good chance that justice will not be served because I might think you deserve even more than justice would demand because you hurt me so badly. 
A two-year sentence isn't enough. Probation isn't enough. A life sentence isn't enough. It's got to be one of those life plus ten years or a hundred years. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's the way our judicial system works. Based on case law. We've talked about in the past. So if, I, if, if that's my system, I might even demand a, consequences, a consequence that even God doesn't demand. Hmm. Wow. That's not justice. So how do we prevent this, these distortions? By remembering that God's going to judge with equity. God saw that sin. God knows about it. Nobody gets away with anything. Sin will be properly dealt with. God will deal with it and it needs to be dealt with. One way or another, it will be dealt with. But we're not the king in this parable. In this parable, we're just another one of the servants. We're not the king. We don't get to decide who gets what. We're not the judge. We're all in need of forgiveness. So, forgiven sinners forgive. Is there any simpler way to put it? Forgiven sinners forgive. That's, that's the kingdom principle. We're working on it. We're, we're trying it. There's grace in our hearts. It's hard. Maybe two steps forward, one back. But forgiven sinners forgive. That's Christ's story and he wants it to be ours as his follower. There are consequences to unforgiveness, as you know, because I'm sure, like myself, you've reveled in it. And it's poison. It's not fun. It's not fun to have that hanging over your head. The idea of vengeance is fun, watching other people suffer. But unforgiveness is poison to our own souls. It's bringing darkness. It's allowing evil to grow instead of Christ. And we can get depressed because it doesn't solve anything. We can get to where we can't even function. All we do is think inward. We're thinking about ourselves and we're stuck and we're obsessed on what this is doing to me. And therefore, the rest of life's been put on hold or pause and other people are suffering in it. Because we have not been able to liberate that person. And it's just a cycle that can only get worse the more we hold on to it. And there are also benefits to forgiveness. Kent Hughes says the health benefits of a forgiving spirit are incalculable. The chief benefit is this. We are never closer to God or more like God than when we forgive. When we forgive, we're like the father and like the son who prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We say to err is human, and that's true, but the last part of that couplet is to forgive is divine, and so it is. You are never more beautiful or noble or healthy than when you forgive, for then you are like God. So we want to be a church family, a gathering of disciples that, that forgive. We want to learn how to do this. We want to apply it on that platform of Mercy, we want to, to do it for the health of our own souls. We want to do it for the health of this church. We want to do it for the health of our marriage, for the health of our families and our relationships. 
We want to do it so the world can see the light. That there is another way to deal with offenses. A kingdom way. A Christ way. And we want to do it for the glory of God. Well, I open with a story, so I'll close with a story this morning. And this one is a story told by uh, Richard Wormbrand, a great missionary that shared Christ in communist countries and suffered for it. But he tells this story. He has lots of stories, but here's one of them. Once met a man who had experienced the divine release that comes through forgiveness. Wormbrand was in a communist prison in Romania at the time. Lying in a prison cell reserved for those who were dying. And in the cot on his right was a pastor who had been beaten so badly that he literally was just waiting to die. On his left was the very man that had nearly beaten the pastor to death. Only his communist brothers turned against him and nearly beat him to death and threw him In the same prison. Now one night the communist awakes in the middle of a nightmare and he cries out, please, pastor, say a prayer for me. I have committed such crimes. I cannot die. Please pray for me. The pastor could barely move, but he feebly sat up. He he summons for some other prisoners just to help him finish getting him up and walking him over there, and he, he's walked over there to the man who had tortured him. And then he says these words I have forgiven you with all of my heart, and I love you. If I, who am only a sinner, can love and forgive you, more so can Jesus, who is the Son of God and who is love incarnate. Return to him. He longs for you much more than you long for him. He wishes to forgive you much more than you wish to be forgiven. You must repent. And there in that prison cell, the communists began to confess all his sins, all his murders, all his tortures. When he had finished, the two men prayed together. Embraced and then returned to their beds where each died that very night. This pastor had learned to forgive everyone for everything. And he learned this from Jesus who forgave his debts and taught him to do the same. May God bless the preaching of his word.